out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, Jim. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be getting deep down and groovy with an artist. And this time it is going to be Robert Vickers from many bands, but uh, The Go-Betweens is one of the ones that um, we were particularly intrigued by. So this is the interview um, in its entirety. No editing, no special effects. We've kept it to to the minimum. But um, after a few minutes of babbling about life, love, poetry and all that sort of stuff, um, I mentioned to Robert about that wonderful world that was 83, which is, for me, the beginning of indie pop and also when he entered and joined the go-betweens this is the interview robert take it away well firstly 83 to 87 is the exact time that i was in the go-betweens too so that's (laughs) that's just perfect uh but yeah well the 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 punk period that's when i started playing music and for us it was the the impetus to actually begin playing music uh before that you know i would say all of us were all um interested in other things, maybe interested in music, but the idea of actually being in a band and making records didn't really, wasn't really that big a possibility. Uh, Punk made all that possible. Yes, but I did notice, because in my great research, you visited London, England in 1977. This is true, isn't it? That's true. That was not to do with music, though. It was more to do with generally being wanting to travel and to leave Brisbane and do other things. So it was a more general reason, not it was not specifically for music. While I was there, um, I wasn't able to, I was, had no money, I wasn't able to go out and see bands, but I did realise that what I wanted to do was be in a band. Yes. And, I, uh, and was the bass your instrument, did you think? Because bass... bass uh, guitarists, you know, they often have different reasons for why they picked up the bass. I mean, I have to confess, I love Lemmy from Motorhead, and I think he was a rhythm guitarist, though he always says he wasn't a very good one, but then he got the gig for Hawkwind, and it was because the bass player had left, or wasn't turning up, and he'd left his guitar, and um, yes, basically they said, do you want to just try and play bass? And he did, and it was like, oh, you got the gig for a few years. So did did it, was the bass something that you sort of discovered by accident or were you thinking no I love the bass guitar oh no I I didn't know what the bass I I had no real concept of bass guitar I had uh, played I had an acoustic nylon string acoustic guitar which I played around on a bit Uh, when I got back to Brisbane uh, after being in London in 1977 uh, I knew that a friend of mine had a band called The Numbers. Well, it was actually called something else at the time, but he was in a band. And so we had talked for a long time about, you know, what it would be like to be in a band. So I let him know that I would like to be in the band as well. Then when the bass player quit, I became the bass player. I knew nothing about playing bass. I had a very, very vague idea of of how it was done. So I had to go out and buy a bass and learn on the job. Yes. And this was quite an interesting connection, wasn't it? Because you were in a band when you came back that, um, yes, this is the one 
because kind of because you had quite an interesting period during the late seventies in being in various bands. From is it Neon Steel to well, what they were called? They were perhaps called Neon Steel at the time. I think that was their name. But as I joined the band, the change was made to the numbers. Uh, the name was changed. I'm not sure exactly why that was, but it just happened at the same time that I was joining the band. Uh, you know, these these they had these names for like three months at a time or something. Uh, so they were, they had changed their names a number of times before that. And when I joined, uh, the decision was made to call it the numbers, which was very basically like a sixties, yes. uh, like the high numbers, the, the, the who's original name. Uh, and so that happened just as I was joining the band. Yes. And then you found yourself living in New York to join the colors who were managed by, Hilly Crystal, who was the owner of the CBGBs, which is obviously the famous club. So you did get around a lot during those, uh, during that sort of late 70s period. Well, the thing that I really wanted to do after I left school was travel. I wanted to go to other other places and see other 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 countries and other people and do things like that. And I did that. I went to, you know, 1977, I went to Europe. I went throughout Europe, North Africa ended up in London. Uh, then I was going to stay in London, but decided to go back to Brisbane to, in the hope of joining a band, because I knew my friend was in a band. And I thought that would be easier than staying in London and being in a band in London where I knew nobody. I had nowhere to live. I had no no money. Um, I was completely out of money. So I had to, I would have had to start a new life in London, basically. So I thought it'd be easier to go back to Brisbane, where I, I knew people and I knew someone in a band and I would have had instant access to the scene. And there was a band there called, or there was a band called The Saints, who had grown up in the same neighborhood I had. Yeah. And they had, they had made, put out their own record and were already in London, signed to a major label, and were in the middle of everything that was happening. So that's what I wanted to emulate. So I went back to Brisbane to be in this band with my friend. And uh, after a certain point, I was in that band for maybe like six months. We made a record, a single, but it really, but I really wasn't developing quick enough as a bass player. And so they wanted to get another bass, but they wanted someone else to play bass. So I said, fine. I wanted to travel more, so I went to the United States. I went to North America, and I traveled throughout um, uh, the United States, Canada, and Central America, and ended up in New York. Now, this time, once I got to New York, I found New York very friendly. Uh, I went to CBGB's, I went to Max's, Kansas City. I instantly met people, particularly at CB's. I met people, the first night I was there, I ended up in someone's house nearby. They offered me a place to stay and to join their band. And the first night I went to CBGB's, I had a place to stay and I was in a band. My God, that's, I mean, that is extraordinary. I mean, that's, it's like, if you took that script to a, you know, Hollywood producer, they'd say, yeah, that doesn't really happen. But no, it just all clicked. It all just clicked. It was just that kind of time. And I found that... CB's was a great place to hang out in, and uh, the band took off immediately. We uh, started playing very soon after that. Uh, we played a number of small clubs, and 
Hilly, who was the owner of CBGB's, saw us. He really liked us. He thought we had kind of commercial potential and asked to manage us. Uh, soon after that, uh, Clem Burke, who was the drummer in Blondie, saw us and he offered to produce us. So within like a year, we had all of this going on and it just sort of flowed from there. We made records, we made a, a, a an EP and toured, you know, in, in the East Coast, we didn't go really further than that, but we toured the East Coast, we played lots of shows in New York. We had just had a great time and we were sort of the house band at CBGB's because Hilly wanted us to play a lot. So we opened for a lot of bands and had a, had you know free access to CBGB's, free drinks. Uh, it was it was basically a, a a dream come true for a young person. Well, yes, absolutely. And did you? Yeah. I mean, just as an aside, because I I think he was amazing, and uh, I loved his kind of the film. Did you meet Danny Fields, the great Danny Fields, who was managing the Ramones? Uh, I, I did. I didn't really uh, I didn't really know him at that time. He was sort of a figure on the scene. Later on, um, I have met him and had dinner with him uh, for at South by Southwest, like this conference in, yes. in Austin, and, you know, heard him tell stories and things like that, but I didn't really know him very well. No. But then, my God, I have to say, your passport was red hot here, wasn't it? Um, you, you're yeah. going to get back to Australia. And during this time in the dear old UK, I mean, we'd had that, obviously, the punk period, not everybody, but, you know, there was that punk period. And then the post-punk period of Peel and um, Gang of Four and um, Magazine, those sort of bands. And and sort of there was the new romantic stuff that was also happening in the charts. and uh, And obviously that sort of... No one knew the indie pop scene was about to happen. But then you go back to Australia and dis- not discover, because obviously they were already, already there, the go-betweens. So the, how did that gig sort of line up? Well, I knew the go-betweens already from Brisbane. Uh, I saw their first show in Brisbane. Uh, in fact, they borrowed the drummer from, this is Robert Forster and Grant McLennan, borrowed the drummer from the numbers. Like They just showed up at one of our, our shows we were playing and said, we'd like to play, could we, but we don't have a drummer, could we use your drummer? And of course, Dennis, who was the drummer, said, sure, why not? So they went on stage and played the first Go-Betweens show. Uh, so that was, so I actually saw the first Go-Betweens show, met them, uh, became friends with them. Uh, later on, the grant came, when I was living in New York, he came and visited me in New York and stayed for a month in New York. So I knew them very well. Uh, through this, I had, I had, you know, played with them in various ways, just in, in practice rooms and things like that. So we knew each other very well. Uh, when I was living in New York and playing in The Colors, there came a time when I realized that The Colors had sort of run its course and we weren't going to get signed to a label, a major label, uh, our independent label that we're working with had fallen apart. So I decided I had heard from a friend of mine, a guy named Peter Milton Walsh, who this is another long story. He was playing with me in the color. He was a Brisbane person who was playing with me in the colors at the time. I had brought him over from Brisbane to play in the colors. Uh, he got a chance to play, to go to London to play bass in the Laughing Clowns. Oh yes, which was a spin-off from The Saints, 
the band that had grown up in the same neighborhood as me in, in Brisbane. And he said to me, why don't you, I, you know, that he had heard that the Gerbertweens needed a bass player. He said, why don't you contact the Gerbertweens and go and play bass with them in London? So, because uh, they were living in London at this time. So I thought, that's, that's a good idea. So I called Robert Forster and said, I heard you're looking for a bass player. What about me? And he said, well, I'll talk to Grant about it. And and Lindy, who was who was already in the band at the time, and uh, then he called me back and said, "Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Why don't you come over?" So I went to London and joined the Go-Betweens uh, on bass. Fantastic. And Grant, Grant moved from guitar from bass to guitar. Yes, and, and that's how we became a four-piece. And that's how it all started to happen. Because I mean, did it feel quite? Because cause obviously, you know, a lot of the bands I've interviewed, you know, you have that solid, base, uh, you know, group to begin with, the four or five piece, normally, more than three piece. Um, and then, you know, bands change. But by then, the go-betweens had only just had two, well, I say just, but I mean two albums out. So joining a band that had already sort of was on, on the sort of like circuit, did that feel quite intimidating? Because then you obviously, you were the new boy who was in the band having to sort of fit into these two songwriters. Yes, even though I knew them very well and I wasn't concerned about fitting in musically with them, I was very, I I had very good ideas about what they liked and um, what they were into and they knew me very well and they knew what I was into. So that wasn't a problem. But what was intimidating was the fact that I already had two albums out. I was going to have to learn all of those songs and I'd never done that before. Like the bands that I joined before, the numbers and the colours were kind of from almost from scratch. They they didn't really have very many songs. There wasn't much established. So this was a really different thing. I was joining a band and I'd have to learn all these bass lines or create new bass lines for songs or, you know, I had to fit in that way. Uh, so I actually what I did is actually before I had a couple of months before I was going to London, I actually knew someone who was a singer-songwriter who was playing around and I offered to play with him just for the experience of learning a lot of songs quickly. Yeah. So so I did that. I did that as a kind of an experiment to make sure that I could actually do this. And I did. I was able to do it, which was which was good. So I felt much more confident about going to London and quickly learning two albums worth of material. Yes, which, uh, is, which is obviously quite something. And also, like, all the great bands have a fantastic rhythm se- um, section, whether it's Sly and Robbie, which is reggae, um, or sort of, you know, Fleetwood Mac, John McVie, you know, Charlie Watts, Bill Wyman. And then you have... Creedence, the Smith- Creedence, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yes, absolutely. My favourite. And, yes. and also the Smiths with um, Joyce yes, and Rock. So, I mean, they, they, so you and Lindy, did you kind of get your groove going quite quickly did it did it sort of fit together quite nicely uh i think it did i think we you know we worked together lindy's a very different kind of drummer in that she doesn't just sit there and play four four or play very simple beats that you can do whatever you want around it's quite complex you have to work out all of the beats you have to spend a lot of time figuring out what you're going to play and how it's going to work out with what she's playing because she, what she's playing is more thought out than what a lot of drummers play. I've played with a lot of drummers and uh, mostly they're, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward and 
they want to and and they play things where you can work around linda you have to spend a bit more time making sure what you're playing is working with what she's playing and what she's playing is working with what you're playing so you have to spend more time uh working on that and making sure that it it actually works with the song and that's what we did we spent mm. a lot of time in the practice room working on on what we were playing and making sure that it was right for the song. Yes, because it was John Peel, the good old John Peel, who had such a big influence on my life and maybe what else in the indie kind of music world, that um, he played one of those songs which I still to this day love from that album, which is Park Company. Can you remember when that song came together? Well, I do remember, I do remember playing it in rehearsal and, you know, what I was you know, the things that I would try, was trying to do. Uh, I don't remember it as being a difficult song to work out. Uh, it's perhaps a song where maybe Lindy followed me a little more than I followed her in, in that respect, because I do remember I wanted to do something that was kind of like almost solely, like, um, you know, like a soul bass line. Uh, I don't know if I succeeded or not, if that's what it sounds like to other people, but that's what I was thinking about at the time. Um, and I I do remember that, that it did come together quite quickly. Yes. It was a song that 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 we, we because maybe I had a really strong idea from the start, uh, if both of you come in with with not strong ideas, then then you have more more. Uh, problem working it out because you have to figure out whose ideas are best. If you if one of you have a, has a really strong idea, then then it falls together quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, so that one that one came together quite quickly, I think, and I was very happy with it. I've always liked that. That's one of my favourite bass lines to play in the Go Betweens. Well, I know, and also because of you being an indie kid from that period and feeling all sort of like um, I don't know, it, a lot of I suppose that the the go to emotion at that period was kind of romantic melancholia, and and that had that sort of sentiment a bit like when I first heard the Triffids, you know, Wide Open Road and things like that. You just right. kind of, mm-hmm. and the Smiths, you know, basically all the Smith songs, you know, had that kind of doomed feeling of a you know that resulted in alienation and loneliness which obviously when you're young you just think yes that's me in a song <laughs> yes <laughs> it is it's a fantastic lyric yes it uh, is a great that, lyric that lyric is incredible yes and, and i always always enjoyed playing playing around it like particularly you know in the in the chorus uh where i'm doing something melodic through that through that, through those lines, it's just one of those songs that Robert Robert very often finds a couplet, you know, just like a couplet that's just fantastic, and um, that has a number of them in it. Yes, and had you know because because having done a lot of these interviews. Um, you know, most bands have a five-year narrative, you know, of kind of rehearsing and playing for about 12 months and then sort of getting a sound together or single that John Peel, the great John Peel, picked up, would give it a play, then do a John Peel session, which was, you know, three or four songs, and then they'd get a few more gigs around the whole country, possibly Europe, and then that first album, and by then things were going terribly well. And then the second album, that's when things were often not going so well. And if anybody ever toured America, that was often a disaster for most bands I sort of spoke to. So... But your narrative is quite different because you'd had already two albums. But by the that period in the eighties, with you know in the UK there had been this, all this unemployment, a lot of people 
musician wise could sort of claim on you know the dole or the job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance so it was almost having a grant and you just could be a pop star or rock star in an indie sort of way um how did you kind of pick up on that scene because there was a lot of kind of political angst going on as well as romantic angst you know there was thatcher on one side there was also you know we'd had the falklands the miners strike and then we were trucking on to things like the red wedge movement where people were desperate to you know, bring down the government, unlike today. Um, so I just wondered if you were, you know, even though you were part of that indie scene, you were also, you know, coming from Australia, which is, you know, must have felt slightly removed, I guess. Yes, we were, uh, we were a little bit removed from that. We're not, we're not an overtly political band um, in our lyrics. Um, Providing Grant's lyrics weren't, weren't political, they were very personal. Uh, so, we weren't thought of in that way. Um, I, you know, we coming coming from Brisbane, which was, there was a lot of, you know, politics in that, and particularly Lindy was very involved in politics in Brisbane uh, in the 70s that had a very repressive right-wing government, uh, much worse than anything anything Britain had. Uh, so in, in a way, some of Britain's politics seemed, seemed almost quaint to us because we were coming from a place that was really repressive. Uh, and the fact that, you know, some of the, some of the problems in Britain uh, didn't seem as severe as the problems in, in Brisbane. Uh, but we, we're, we're aware of them, definitely aware of them. And uh, many of our friends were involved in it and, and in Ireland in the, the, the Irish troubles and things like that, which were happening at the same time. Yes. Uh, so we were very aware of it, but we were not, we were not a political band in that respect. Yes, and and obviously, as, as we were trucking through the decade, um, the NME brought out the famous C eighty six cassette. It's, it's so famous, um, which kind of encompassed all those kind of bands like Bogshed and um, Big Flame and Stump and you know the Shop Assistants. A lot of really sort of uh, I don't know, both scratchy and sort of quite heavy on the sort of basic production wasn't it a lot of feedback going on like we've got a first box and we're going to use it but you you know obviously the go-betweens a bit like the smiths and june brides had a lot more of a cultured quality but did you also feel a part of that indie scene because at the time you had like a weekly paper like the nme would have a circulation of a hundred thousand and then you had the melody maker record mirror and sounds mm. and john peel as well who was this great gatekeeper that you know a john peel play you would sort of realize even though one listened to it on one's own, you know, you realise there was a lot of other, you know, individual people listening to it in a slightly nerdy way. As we we would often we'd often record the shows as well as you know listen to them just so that you could listen to them again. And if there was a really hard to find song, at least you had it on a TDK D ninety cassette. So I mean, did you sort of feel that that was a little bit of a an indie scene happening at that time? You mean specifically the. That scene, yes, uh, that, that kind of. I, 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 I didn't particularly feel part of that scene. We were very, we were aware of this because we read the enemy and the, in the, we read the papers religiously, same as everyone else did. Uh, so we were very aware of these things popping up and things happening. Uh, I don't feel that we were part of, we, we felt we were part of that scene. And a lot of times in London, for the go-betweens, uh, we felt slightly apart from a lot of the kind of local bands, the London, the English bands, 
most of our friends were Scottish uh, uh, Australian bands, you know, obviously Aztec Camera and Orange Juice, uh, the Triffids, uh, the Laughing Clowns. The bands that we spent time with were the, uh, the Scottish bands, the Australian bands, even American bands. Uh, so we didn't necessarily feel that close to, to the English bands. And I think most of those bands were English. Yes. Uh, I don't know why that was, but it, it, it just seemed to be the way. Well, also because we were constantly going out and tour. So even though we lived in London, we were going to Australia for long tours. We were going to Europe for long tours. Uh, so we were, we were not always in London. Uh, we were moving around constantly because you needed to do that to survive. You had to keep moving. You had to keep producing. You had to. You got paid when you were on tour. Yes. So uh, we spent a lot of time on tour. We were not, even though we read the papers and we knew about these bands, we were not. We were not close to them. Yeah. And did you? At that time, there were a few bands who who'd started to make the break from being the, an indie band being played on John Peel to kind of more stadium rock. And there was like Simple Minds started to get that sound, the you know, U2 as well. And then in Australia you had um, In Excess who started to sort of put that kind of, I don't know, pop punk with that kind of Prince funk and become suddenly a stadium band. Did you, did the band ever sit down and think, actually, you know, we, you know, where are we going to go? Because a band like In Excess quickly seemed very manufactured in a way that... Um, yeah, I mean, obviously sold phenomenal you know, quantities of tickets and albums. But did you ever, as a band, think, God, you know, we could be in excess? Um, we wanted to have commercial success. We didn't really see ourselves as in excess or U2 or that kind of stadium band. Um, we would, we had lower, lower expectations. Uh, we had hoped we hoped really to have some kind of a, uh, a a chart success in order to pay the bills, basically, in order to stay afloat. Uh, we needed to have some kind of to sell records, and having some kind of chart success would would have made that possible. So that's what that's what our aim was to take go to the next step. Yes. Like that going looking at at those kind of bands. Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think we really saw ourselves as that kind of a band, but we needed to have some kind of a chart success to survive. So that's what we were really aiming at. Yeah. Because uh, last year there a was lower a lower rung on the ladder. Know, yes, I suppose we actually. We looked at the ladder. We looked at the ladder. We didn't look at the top of the ladder. We looked at the lower rungs. <laughs> Move a little further up. Yes. Well, I suppose the Smiths managed to slightly keep that that quality without suddenly yes. sort of um, running around mm. like Bono or Michael Hutchins. But then, I mean, one thing that um, came out this year and last year was the wedding present brought a, a film out. Well, they didn't, but somebody a very keen fan, and um, it was on the album George Best. And I don't know if you've seen it, um, the actual film itself. But oh, they, I saw the wedding present recently, though. The wedding? Uh, oh, I, yes. Yeah, yeah, they were great. They are still going. But the interesting thing with that uh, film was, um, you know, the, the original members were talking about that making that album. And there was a lot of discussion around the drummer and the producer because there were problems 
with the click track. Oh, really? Yes. What a surprise. <laughs> what a su- I know. And it was kind of weird because, you know, being a fan, you just thought, uh-huh. I'm not that bothered about the click track and of course the, not. the drummer. But this it- this was a big thing. And I think the drummer had a lot of problems. And I think, yeah, didn't it left a bad taste in his mouth. And the producer um, left, well, was asked to leave or something like that, let's say. Yeah, um, well, I had already done this. In, in New York already. I'd already been through this. Uh, was that the end of your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, that was the end. So I just wondered how you were sort of coping with the, you know, these, these kind of producers who were kind of inflicting sometimes kind of artistic control and thinking, well, we're an indie band or a bit of a punk band. We don't really need to have that precision. What's, what's the problem? But suddenly, yeah, the producer gets a bit carried away. Yes, well, I had I'd sort of been through this already um, in New York because the band that I was in was we were produced by a drummer, Clem Burke, um, and Clem's first thing when we went to the studio was, oh, you've got to have click track because radio won't play records anymore that aren't in time, and which is kind of true. I mean, if you if you look at particularly and English radio was exactly the same. Uh, They wanted records to sound very much in time. So uh, we went in with the drummer we had at at that time in the colours into the studio and started working on the record and immediately Clem, who has no problem playing with a click track. This is a guy we had recorded with him before with a click track and he could play all around a click track like just play around it that we had a perfectly good drama great drama at the time in the colors when he went into the studio he found it difficult to play with click track you know if you've been playing for years without a click track and doing fills and uh playing playing different beats to suddenly be to have to play everything in exact time every single beat that you're playing and a drummer plays dozens of things in, in, in a few minutes. There's a dozens of beats in a few minutes, like things hitting things. You have to have everything exactly in time with the click track. That's very difficult. And the drummer we had had a lot of trouble doing it. And it was, you know, very stressful to, to go into a studio, you know, where you think you're going to have fun and you're going to do this, this great thing. And to suddenly be to have these people sitting in, a, in, in the control room looking at you going, no, that wasn't good enough. That's a really, really tough thing to, to, to deal with. And he had a lot of problems. Uh, we finally got through it, but it was a very difficult thing. And it, and it makes, and you're recording, you've got X amount of time to record what you think you're going to do the drums in one day. And it turns out taking three days, then that's two less days. You have to work on bass, guitar, vocals, overdubs, all the thing, other things you need to do. So it impacts everybody. It's from right at the start of the recording, impacts everybody. So uh, as soon as I got to London, we started recording uh, with the producer who had produced uh, the Go Between's first album before Hollywood. Uh, very comparatively successful record, not done with the click track. Everyone was very happy with it. No problems at all. First thing that I get to do is the single uh, Man I Send a Girl I See. We went in and did the single by itself and the producer, John Brand, he wants to do it with the click track and instantly it's a problem. And the same thing that happened in New York 
have, is happening now with Lindy because she'd been playing for years without without a quick track and she has to adjust to playing through a quick track and it's a very very difficult thing to do so we had problems with that we got through it um did the single single didn't do as well but that's not to do with the the quick track or the drumming it was to do with the kind of song it was uh we then go to do the first album and uh with that i was going to be playing on which was spring hill fair we got a lot of money to do it from a major label. We went to the south of France, did it with the same producer, John Brand. He wants to do the entire album with Click Track, and it became a real problem. Um, and it, it became a problem which cropped up every time we did a single uh, with a Click Track. It was difficult, and I wish we hadn't done it. I wish we'd done it without a Click Track, but that was what producers demanded at the time it was what record companies demanded they wanted things that could be played on the radio and the radio wanted a really really steady beat right through a song and it was a problem for everybody in the early 80s uh, who was who were trying was trying to do that yes it's kind of weird because the charts were really divided there was the you know Trevor Horn sort of quality sound that you know he did with ABC and then Frankie and um, a lot of those sort of bands that got into the top 10 and you know you had um, Stock Aikman and Waterman and all that kind of sound and then you know so that was fine but then the indie kids like me you know I just was not that I was not sort yeah. of I didn't when I was listening to the shop assistants I didn't really think oh I'm not sure about that drumming I was just yeah. thinking <laughs> or, or we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it it was like no love, yeah. love that two and a half minutes of youthful enthusiasm and kind of shouty lyrics so it was kind of odd when I've heard you know and then seeing this film about the wedding present and this kind of okay we're going to have to tackle this kind of really difficult subject and I thought it was going to be a film that was just all about oh yeah we had this lovely time in the studio it's like no the drummer was like mm, do I have to going back 30 odd years and sort of having to relive the the hell that was the click track and the difficult problems with the producer and it's like okay and it was I mean when you see it you'll laugh because there is an odd little moment that happens in the film that I won't spoil, but you think, well, that was a bit strange. There was a sort of, there's almost a disclaimer that just flashes up for a few seconds about something that you think, oh, that's a bit odd. But yes, the producer asked to have it inserted in the film, which I think made it even more peculiar, really. But anyway, it's of its moment. And you can tell that even though three decades later, there is tension still, <laughs> it's still there. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this, this it's absolutely it doesn't go away. Now, the the, the album after that, after uh, Spring Hill Fair, the next album we did producing it with an engineer, and we did not use a click track. Um, Liberty Bell and the Black Diamond Express. We decided we were just going to go in and do it the way we wanted to do it, and I think that produced a better album. Um, I think there's maybe a little bit of click track on Spring Rain, perhaps, uh, but because we knew it was going to be a single, uh, but we entire album we recorded the drums very naturally, and I think that's why it's one a lot of fans like that album, but more than a lot of other albums because uh, even though you know the songs I think are equal across a lot of albums. 
that album sounds better, I think, because we did it in a more natural way. Yes. And did it, I mean, because because often, you know, I remember talking to a, a member of the Primitives who had huge amounts of success and, and record sales and singles, you know, sales and all that, and then got to that point where, you know, they brought an album out and no one was interested. You know, the fans had slightly moved on into being, you know, I suppose, getting homes, jobs and families and and they realised that no one was really interested. So when you brought out a third album, which was, you know, the, the one before this this one, you know, Spring Hill Fair, was there a bit of a disappointment in the sense that it didn't chart? I just wondered how much of a, you know, how what, what an existential angst the band had because it didn't sort of go... Breakthrough. Yes, that's the word. Uh, yeah, um, that was a really complex situation because we were signed to we were signed to sire i don't know if you know the record label sire it's one of the is that seymour seymour stein's label classic um, seymour stein fantastic bands a lot of a lot of the new york bands were on it patty smith was on it the ramones were on it, it was just a, a great label uh so we were signed to this and we thought this was absolutely fantastic you know this was this was great we went down to the south of france did 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 this record uh, it was tough work doing the record, but we thought, you know, it was, you know, a, a commercial record um, and it had uh, a, a commercial single on it. We thought Bachelor Kisses. So we thought this was going to be, you know, something was going to happen with this. We were very happy with it. Went on tour. You go on tour. You don't know what's going on. Uh, eventually realized we aren't coming out on Sire in America. We aren't coming out in America at all. The record never came out in America. It came out in the rest of the world, not on Sire, but on Warner Brothers, who couldn't care less about the go-betweens. They didn't sign them. They they were just sort of handed the record by Sire and who had a deal with them. And so we got very little record company support anywhere in the world. A uh, little bit in London. London, the English, the English part of the label tried a little harder, but mostly we didn't get much support anywhere in the world. So the record didn't really do very much. Uh, so that was kind of our feeling that we had we had been pretty much screwed by the record company, and we just moved on. We just uh, you know kept going. We were a very self-contained unit in a way. Um, we went we were on tour a lot. The tours were going well. We didn't so we just felt like we we'll just move on. Yes, and then the, so the the Liberty Bell and the Black Diamond Express. This was recorded back in London. Did that feel a relief after your? exotic world of doing your exile on mainstream street um, you know because the rolling stones did that classic album in france so did you did you, did you think <laughs> this is it this is this is our exile on main street we're going to do it uh, i never actually thought that but uh <laughs> yes i can see the i can see the comparisons I was, yes. yeah, it, was, it was a hopeful dream it was a hopeful dream it was a hopeful dream but yes yeah, back in back in the gray streets of london to, to earth perhaps yes. yes so yes the gray the gray streets of london so liberty bell obviously must have felt a lot different because you know you didn't you didn't have mr brand band brand wasn't it the brand, producer yes. so you, you managed to sort of shot, um yeah put him to one side so then when you were going back well not going back but going forward to the next album to lula this is where amanda appears isn't it Yes, when we're on tour for Liberty Bell, uh, we met Amanda in in Australia in Sydney. Uh, Lindy had seen her playing with a friend of ours in a, a duo, a little duo, 
and she said she would be perfect for the go-betweens. Um, and we had sort of thought about moving to being a five-piece because on Liberty Bell, we had used a lot of strings and we used keyboards and that it worked out really well. Um, the songs really suited it. We thought this was a great idea. Maybe we should add a fifth member. And so we had that in mind. Now, Linda had sort of seen Amanda. We hadn't thought about violin. Uh, you know, even though we'd used strings, having a single violin rather than, you know, we had used cello and violin. We had used, you know, basically a string, you know, strings rather than a single uh, instrument. And we thought keyboards would make more sense, you know, because then the, you could you could do a lot of different things. Uh, so violin wasn't our first choice, but Lindy really, really wanted Amanda and kind of insisted. So uh, one day we were going and she started playing with us on the tour and it was great. It was really good. She was she fitted in really well and she added a lot of youth and vitality to a band that had been on the road for you know, 10 years almost. I mean, you know, we'd been playing for a long time, not me particularly, but Robert and Grant had been playing since, you know, 78. Uh, so this, this had been a long time. So it really needed a shot in the arm kind of, and she provided that. And uh, one day I, I just came to soundcheck and you know, we were talking in the in the in the, the van and she had convinced Robin and Grant to do this. And so even though I was sort of thinking, well, this means we've got to split our our wages five ways now when we get back to London and we're going to be poor, not on tour, getting per diems and getting we'd be back in London on on wages and it'd be very it'd be very low wages. And so I was like, oh, is this going to work out? But yeah. it did. It was a great idea, and you know, Lindy was right about it, and Amanda was great for the band. Yes, and this... and we went, but oh, go ahead. No, no, after you. Well, I was going to move on to to the recording of Tallulah, but if you have a question, go ahead. Well, I was just going to to yeah, actually, I was going to I was going to mention a, a track from the album, which was the house that Jack Kerouac built, because that's probably my favourite song on the album. So I was just wondering if you can remember much about recording that that particular um yeah track uh what i remember um, uh, re about it is more that it kind of came together in pieces it was one of those robert had a lot of songs around that time which came together in pieces like you would he would bring bits to rehearsal and you would play like the verse, and then you play the chorus or something and come up with a part for that and a part for this. And it sort of came together in pieces. Uh, it came together very well. I think it's a very, it's, it, it, it worked beautifully. Those pieces work beautifully together. But I always think of it in pieces, almost as separate songs, almost as like a, a, a concerto of different bits <laughs> that come together. I'm not sure if sometimes the way I think about songs is, not the same way as someone hearing the song thinks about it, uh, but it, uh, it it felt a bit like that, and it you know the big build-ups in it were fantastic. It was it was it, 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 I almost think about it as something off Abbey Road or something like where there's bits and pieces coming together to make a a, a bigger song. Yeah, uh, and it was it was one of my favourites as well, and I love playing it live too. It was a great live song. Yeah. Uh, 
as, I, as Robert songs often were. Because 87, which was the year you um, released it, and obviously were, did you, was it all recorded in the same year? Or was it the end of 86? The album? Yeah. Uh, well, no, because it was another kind of messed up thing where we decided to do singles first, do the singles, um, and we got a producer, like a, a, a serious producer, and Craig Leon, who was a New York person from the 70s, from the CBGB's period. So we're really interested in because of that. His work with the Ramones, and he had just had a hit in London, in England, with... Uh, Oh, I forget what it was, but it was a, it was like a, a commercial hit. So we thought this guy's got both things working that we could that might work well with us. Yes, because so he done stuff with. I mean, he did stuff with uh, Suicide, The Ramones, and Talking Heads. So he was yes. obviously he knew he had the magic fairy dust to make things happen, he, didn't he? He had credibility with us. He had incredible credibility. So he was someone who had a hit hit in England with with a band. I forget what it was called. It was, I think it was Spirit in the Sky. I think it was a cover of Spirit in the Sky. Oh my God, Doctor and the Medics. Doctor and the Medics. Oh my God. Yes. I keep thinking Doctor Quinn and the Medicine Man, but that's that's a television show. Doctor uh, Medics. Oh Doctor the, yes. Yeah. So so he just just had this hit. So we figured he could make hits, and he also has this this great credibility of working with these great bands. Uh, let's give him a try. So we went with him uh, to do two songs. Uh, right here and cut it out. These were two songs that we'd picked out of the songs we had to work with that we thought might work as singles. And so we worked with him on those. And of course, all the same problems came up. The click track, uh, you know, he wanted to simplify things, make it simpler. Uh, so we had a lot of problems recording uh, those singles, but we did it. And what we decided to do, we, we then went and did the album with the same engineer called a co-production uh, that we'd worked with and had success with on Spring Rain. Oh, no, I'm sorry, on Liberty Bell. Uh, so we recorded those tracks with uh, the same guy we did uh, Liberty Bell with. And the studio, we weren't really, wasn't really, ha we weren't really happy with the studio. Uh, ultimately, then we we realized we were going to have to combine these two singles we did with the the album tracks on an album and make them sound reasonably the same, like not jarringly different. And that became a problem. So the whole album became a bit of a problem balancing it, balancing these singles we did with the album tracks we did. And then we ended up remixing the album tracks uh, to try and balance it together, and I'm not sure that worked entirely. So the album is a little disjointed in that way. Yes, and did you, I mean, obviously, having sort of been around and in different groups, you know, not pop bands, but, you know, groups of people, um, dynamics change a lot, and obviously you were a five-piece and with two couples in a band, so that must have made the dynamic kind of interest in being a member of the band who wasn't in a couple with the other anybody else did did that sort of create a, a different vibe within within the go-betweens well certainly because i've been in bands before and band politics is uh, the band politics i've been used to was 
was you know you would you would you would build alliances with different people for different reasons things would happen uh but the romantic relationship was something i'd never dealt with before and it created a, a, an additional uh, alliance but it didn't always work out like that because because Lindy was a drummer and Robert was a singer-songwriter, the, the alliances changed. So even though that was one one alliance, there were others in the band which sometimes trumped that. <laughs> so, so there was all sorts of things going on. And there were never two couples in the band at the same time because Lindy and, Lindy and Robert broke up before Amanda and, and Grant got together. Right, yes, because I, I did an interview with... Um... Uh, members of the the Galaxy 500, and that was always going to be tricky because mm. the the rhythm section were a couple, and the singer songwriter was Dean, so he was always going to get paid. <laughs> yes. So 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 it was kind of a, it was a kind of a weird power trip. It was a bit weird power. I'll send, bit. Out, I'll send out my condolences to Dean right now for that uh, <laughs> for that setup. Yes. So it was. I was of, also I, I was also I was also briefly in Yola Tango where you had a drummer and a singer songwriter. Yeah. Uh, and it was so quite I've, it was quite interesting because obviously Dean must have just thought, look, every time there's a vote, I'm going to lose. But then I sang sing the songs and write yes. them. So, you know, yeah, I mean it it didn't end well at all because obviously he he left and just formed another band, leaving those two, yeah. Not not yes. so not very happy, but you can t- you can you can you can imagine what happened. You know, is that? Oh, I can more than imagine. Yes. <laughs> you know, and and the same with the Cotto twins. Perhaps been yeah. So a five piece is probably better than a three piece with a couple because otherwise, you know, that unless the couple are having a really bad time, they're going to keep on each other's side, aren't they? Really. So um. Now, of course, Dean is is uh, run out in Luna, and and of course, start a relationship with the bass player in, in Luna. So yes, he obviously. Uh, was okay with him being in the relationship. Yes. <laughs> God, I know. Who knows? No, I, 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 I know those guys pretty well. I, I knew them in, I knew Dean in New York before, uh, I guess when I came back from the go-betweens and then uh, I worked with them when I was at, uh, at Jet Set. Yes. And, and 87 is, is one of my favorite years of music because you just have to look at the album releases at that, that particular year. And actually 86 is incredible as well. So there was, there was a real sense that indie pop had hit some high, and obviously the Smiths had just brought out Strange Ways, and then they yeah. were, they were breaking up. And at that same time, this is this is your sort of last moment in the band, wasn't it? Did you, when you were doing the album, feel that this was also to quote Jim Morrison, the end? No, uh, when when we were recording uh, Tallulah, so, yeah, uh, I didn't feel like it was the end, but I felt like I was coming to the end of my rope, perhaps, uh, particularly the we would have long periods of of rehearsal going up to the album, which was a, a good thing to do because you 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 work out the songs very, very carefully and figure out what you're doing. And then when you go into the studio, you know what the songs sound like. You have a very good idea of, of what you want to do. Uh, that kind of protected us in a way, and going back to your earlier question about producers, that kind of protected us in a way from producers really messing with us because we already had a pretty good idea of what the songs we wanted the songs to sound like because we rehearsed them strongly beforehand uh however those periods of rehearsal were very tough they were very difficult to do because you would have you know big arguments about how this song is going to go what you know what's going to happen in the song and Tallulah was particularly bad 
you know, very, very uh, difficult time in the pre-production of Tallulah. Uh, so it was a bit of relief to go into the recording and get on tour. And But then I was always thinking about the next album and how difficult that was going to be. Yes, the next. So, yes, the next album. So that I was thinking about that. I was not thinking this is the end, but I was thinking I had to think about my future. Yes, and what and what was the moment that made you think I'm going to have to say I'm going to leave? Uh, I knowing learning more about the way the music industry worked, I realised that not being a songwriter in the band meant that when the band was over, um, I would get royalties on the record sales, but then but most of the money in the music industry was about music publishing, so. Not being a songwriter meant when this band was over, I was not going to get this continual, I was not going to get a lot of money from the band. Yes. That that the money was going to go to Robert and Grant because they were the songwriters. Now, at the time, when we were on, when we were in the band, we were splitting all that money. The, the money for the music publishing was being used to pay wages for our, for our wages. So we were paying ourselves wages from the music publishing. But when I left the band, I wasn't going to get a whole lot of royalties. This was this was the end. So the, the time that I was putting into the band wasn't going to result in a lot of down the road, a lot of royalties down the road. So this so I had to think about that. And we had been, you know, I'd been in the band for five years. Uh, we had been touring. Uh, I had no money in the bank. I had nowhere to live. Um, I really felt like I wanted to stop moving for a while. So um, I got to the end of the tour for Tallulah, where we were taking a couple of months break, and I just felt like I had to think about the future. I had to think about maybe I should have my own band or, you know, maybe I should have a job for a while and earn some money so I could pay rent. So that was the point where I really felt like this is the end. It was the end of the tour rather yes. than the recording of the album. And did you did you sit down and you know say to the band, this is it, or did you just not turn up? I pretty much not turned. Well, I didn't not turn up, but it got to the point where Robert called me from London. He was in London and uh, I was in New York, and he called me and said, um, "When are you coming back to London?" Uh, and at that point, I had to say, I, "I'm not coming back," and that was really tough to do because I knew that you know you. I knew that Robin and Grant would have a whole set of really great songs that I would really want to play on, uh, that we were going to have more money because, you know, things were improving slowly. Uh, and I just had, but I just had to make that decision and I decided to stay in New York and quit the band. Yes. God, that must have felt really strange knowing the band. Cause it's one thing if everybody's decided to quit, but to sort of then see the band continuing. I remember sort of doing an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead who did those, you know, he was part of that great trio who, who made all those amazing albums with Motorhead. And then to see it continue on for the rest of his life must have felt sometimes a bit like, that was my band. I, and as he said to, you know, in the interview, he said that, you know, he always thought he'd be in Motorhead forever. He didn't ever think he wouldn't be. So it was... You know, he did other things, but I guess it was quite tricky. Whereas, yes, you had a slightly similar thing going, oh, my God, the go-betweens, what are they doing now? 
slightly similar, but not quite the same, because I knew the go-betweens when they started. It was Robin Grant. So it, to me, it was always their band, and it would always be their band, and I would always be part of it because I'd been in the band for so long, but it was not entirely my band. Yes. Ultimately, it was their decision about what happened, what kind of songs, the direction of the band. I could influence it, but it was not my band entirely. So quitting the band was a little easier than it would have been if I had started the band or if I, you know, particularly if I was a songwriter in the band. Yeah. I don't know if I would have quit. I probably wouldn't have. Uh, so that was a little different from, say, that that description or Johnny Marr leaving the Smiths or something, you know, something like that, where this is you started the band and and, you know, you're you're the you're one of the main part, parts of the band. I always felt in the go betweens that I was helping Robin Grant out in a way yes. you know, I was assisting. But I'd been a songwriter in the colors that had been kind of my band. Uh, it felt different in the go-betweens because I wasn't a songwriter. Yeah, I did an interview with um, the bass player who was in a band called The Senseless Things, and then after that split, he you know played bass with just about anybody and was on to, has just been on tour, tour with Muse. But obviously, you know, he's that's his you know a job where he just gets paid to go on tour, play the bass for Muse, and then that's the end of end of it. You well, know. that's that's even different, and I did that as well. I played with um, uh, with Yola Tango. Uh, I played with Lloyd Cole, um, other other people from, from in, in New York, where I was just the bass player getting paid. And that's a different thing as well. So there are different different sort of levels to this. Yes. Uh, that's just purely being being a paid musician. And I I really didn't like that. I much preferred to be either either be my band, which was the perfect thing, or to be part of the band, like a signed member of the band. Like, you know, in the go-betweens, I signed the contracts, the same as everybody else. And so I, I was, I did have a say. It's just that I wasn't a songwriter and that makes a big difference. Yeah. And, and obviously you kept playing bass on those moments and then the go-betweens did one more album and then that finished as well. So did you keep an eye on developments? Cause it kind of ended kind of horrendously, didn't it? Yeah, and I, I, I kind of, that was part of the reason that I was concerned at the end of Tallulah. I felt the band was going to break up eventually. And then, you know, then all this thing about royalties and things would come into, you know, you, you, you know, that I wasn't going to get, the band would break up and I would have basically nothing. Uh, so that would, that came into my thinking as well, that I felt the band was going to break up. Yes. So it didn't surprise me at all when the band broke up. <laughs> Yeah. I was I was not surprised in the slightest. No, but I mean it did it did sort of you know like I don't know that that story about you know was it Boxing Day when Robert and Grant spoke to Lindy and uh, Amanda individually but said actually you know you're no longer part of it. Do stories like that make you slight you know kind of go like, oh god I thought it was going to be bad but not quite like The Godfather. Yeah. Yes. I, I did that. That did, 
that's exactly what I thought. I thought it was going to be bad, but not quite that bad. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I I can't really comment on that because I wasn't there. No, but it was just like, oh god, that is that is that is a Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese sort of film. That is really, but obviously, it made for, well, it made for a good uh, story in the film and the you know, yes, the, the documentary and things like that. It definitely uh, it it this. It, the storyline is great in that respect. It just, uh, I feel sorry for everyone involved. I know, could be. Did, were you ple- were kind of pleased, stroke, stroke, relieved with the film? Because obviously one thing is, you know, who controls the narrative of these uh, kind of stories, isn't it? And and sometimes if one person tells their story, you think, oh, gosh, that's it. And then someone else tells the story as well. And you think, oh, actually, that's quite different. The, you know, the same the, the, the same period of history, the same band, but actually quite a different, you know, a different slant. So obviously Robert, you know, probably wanted a certain story of the go-betweens and a legacy and, and having it kind of told in the film with, you know, Amanda, Lindy and you just made it kind of like, oh, that slightly balanced it. Did you did you get that feeling as well of kind of the legacy of the go-betweens? Uh, yes. Well, you see, that film was made by a guy named Creve Stenders, who was an old friend of ours. Um, I had actually done a movie with him. While I was living in New York, I went back to Brisbane and did a film that he shot, that he was the cinematographer on, um, that Grant wrote the script for. So he was, he knew us and had known us since 1980. So he knew the whole story very well and knew everybody involved and gave a really balanced, made a really balanced film, which I think is great. And I think that's that's one of the reasons it's a really good documentary, because it is totally balanced. Yes, absolutely. And over the years, you know, like a lot of bands, you know, people have re-evaluated it and went, my God, you're, you're even more influential now than you were back then because the go you know the leg you know the legacy of the band and the craftsman craftsmanship of it you know all sort of like makes it yeah it, it gives it a nice place you know i know you've got a park and a bridge named in honor of, <laughs> of, of of the of the band and yourself so that must also have felt you know quite nice to know that a band that you were in in the 80s three decades ago are still sort of so revered in in society Every part it's, of society. Uh, <laughs> it's immensely satisfying. Um, it's, you know, it made it all worthwhile. Uh, at this point, I don't care that I, you know, don't get publishing royalties. <laughs> I got something else, uh, which I, you know, which you hope for. I mean, you think about sort of, you think, well, maybe we'll be remembered. But if you're, if, if you know a lot about music, you know, there are thousands of bands out there that made records that are completely forgotten. Yes. Uh, and that are, that are bands that you like, that you think are great, uh, that are completely ignored. And to be remembered is is the greatest gift. Um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's fantastic, and I'm very, very, very pleased yes. with it. Yes. And the one thing as a fan, one never wants a band really to reform, because that would just be a bit odd and a bit strange. But you kind of hope that certain members are sort of able to occasionally share a sort of, I don't know, an espresso or a latte or, a, you know, a Christmas card with each other. Do you, do the members of the go-betweens after all these years and decades are able to sort of sit down and occasionally sort of have a bit of a chuckle about the past? 
I don't think that's ever happened. Uh, I don't think that's ever happened. Uh, do you mean all of the members together? No, well, I mean, but obviously, you know, it wouldn't have been. Grant, Grant isn't, 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 isn't here. But, but the, you know, the classic kind of lineup with, you know, um, Robert Lindy and Amanda and yourself. Do you ever sort of bump into each other, you know, at one of these events like the bridge or the park and, and go, my God, or just to do with the business and kind of manage to have a bit of a chuckle with each other? Um, we're, we're on speaking terms, you know, we, we, uh, I don't know if we've ever been in the, we've been in the same place. Uh, so yeah, sort of, um, but we, we communicate about, about the, uh, you know, the box sets and things that are coming out. So we talk to each other and, uh, yeah. Um, but I don't know, um, you know, there are still, there are still problems. There are still problems. And, and, you know, we communicate, we get on, but uh, there are still things that uh, some rough edges that may never be soothed out. Yes. Well, these things happen. And yourself, after your sort of post go between, you know, musical moments with various people, did you then eventually put the bass down and, and sort of pursue another career completely? Well, for a while, uh, while I was actually still playing with bands, because New York's expensive. I got a job in the travel industry and worked in the travel industry for a little while, sometimes part time, but setting up tours to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, you know, tours meaning um, tourists going to Australia and New Zealand, booking yes. hotels, booking airflights. Because mostly what I'd done, you know, I figured, you know, my entire life, I'd basically all I'd ever done was play in a band. So when I needed to get a job, the only other thing that I could think that I'd done a lot of was travel. So I went and got a job in travel, which I kind of liked, I enjoyed. Uh, but at, at, at a point I decided all my friends were still in music. I should go back to playing, go back to working in music. So I got a job with a record company. And at that point, uh, just the rehearsing with people just became very difficult. Um, we got a house up, in upstate New York. So I started leaving, going out of the city a lot. So I just stopped playing mostly um, and just worked on helping other bands doing publicity. Yes. So that sort of happened. I haven't played very much at all since then, since about, about well, for the last like 10, 15 years at least. No. So it's still, it's a, it's a case of pub, uh, being the, um, working in PR. Yes, that's what I've been doing. I have my own company. I do PR for bands. Excellent. Well, God, you must love it. I mean, just lastly, I mean, what would you say to your 18-year-old self starting out in music? You would have gone, look, I've got one sentence, one, a couple of bullet points. Just remember these wise words from someone who's been. I just wondered what they would be. <laughs> uh, I guess that, that it's all going to be okay. That's all. That's all I want to say. That it's all going to be okay. It's oh good. Well, that's nice. That is a good one, actually. I mean, the other thing. I know this is a bit boring, but you know, with a lot of you know, I, I was just thinking about when I met, when I did an interview with Fast Eddie. He talked about you know the amount of drinking and drugs they took. I mean, did do indie bands? Did ever did indie bands ever sort of get con consumed in that world as, at all? Or did is it sort of something that you might have done a bit of drinking and some. I don't know, the old cigarette, but nothing serious. I just often wonder what the indie band rock and roll world was like. 
Um, well, I think, uh, yes, drinks and drink, drinking and drug taking is, is, well, it depends on the band. You know, all bands are different. Yes. But, yeah, sure. We we drank huge amounts. There, there was drugs. There's, you know, um, at, at one point, especially on tour, when you're on tour, you're constantly confronted. It's a difficult world, a difficult thing to, to keep doing. And you're constantly confronted by the opportunity to to indulge in, in everything. And you do. Uh, at one point, I, I remember being on tour in New Zealand and having consecutive nights where I woke up not remembering what what had happened the night before, how, how I'd got home. So at, at that point, I just decided I had to drink one night, not drink the next, drink one night, not drink. And, you know, that would that would sort of moderate things. So I didn't. <laughs> I didn't give up drinking, but I, I sort of cut it in half. Yes, uh, which was which was a way of of I think prolonging my life almost. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a lot of drinking, and um, it's not always good. Yes, because I, I, I sort of one thing just lastly that I sort of noticed that thirty years seemed to be a passing of time where people kind of reflect on stuff. So there was like I mentioned the George Best. Um, the the wedding present yes. in a film on George Best, <laughs> and then there was like L Seven, and then the Slits, and then the Chills, and then the Go Betweens. I mean, do, have you watched any of those other documentary films on bands from, you know, and thought, my God, look at that, Martin Phillips. I really love the Chills. I didn't realise he was in such a mess. Uh, well. I haven't seen a lot of them. Uh, I actually saw the Joan Jett one just recently, which was great. Uh, but I haven't seen a lot of them. But I, I, I don't think I would be surprised by anything like that. Yes. I, not at all. I, nothing would really surprise me uh, in along those lines. You know, to say, oh, this person's really messed up. But like, yeah, lots of people are messed up. <laughs> Do you do you realize just lastly? Do you sort we of... we we spent a lot of time with the birthday party? Yes. Um, yeah. So that was well yeah. messed up, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> the interesting thing is with the button, just like you know, with Nick Cave. I didn't realize this until I was listening to a feature about this latest film on Michael Hutchin that um, they were really good friends, and he was like the godfather to one of the children, and spoke at the funeral as well. I didn't, I, I sort of never could quite sort of imagine Nick Cave and Michael Hutchins being that close, but apparently they were, so interesting stuff. They're both from Melbourne, aren't they? They're both from Melbourne. Michael yes, Hutchinson's but I suppose, so. by, you know, one went so stadium rock and, you know, the, as Paula Yates, who wasn't at all biased, said the most gorgeous man in the world, talking about her husband. Um, you know, so Nick Cave, who was quite a different character. You kind of couldn't imagine them being that close, but obviously... I, I, I can imagine them being that close. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember the time you're talking about, and uh, I do remember that that period. Um where they would they would be out together, but uh, I, I can see see lots of things they would have in common. Um, you know, yes, but uh, I'm not going to go into all this now. No, God, don't <laughs> do that. Yeah, none of that kind of thing surprises me. Basically. No. Oh, well, look, Robert, thank you ever so much for this, and um, yeah, and uh, thank you again, and and I'll tell you when I put it out, and um, if you want, and um, that's brilliant. But thanks again, and thank you for the amazing music that you created. It was just you know for us pop indie kids it was just fantastic
Well, I'm very, very happy about it, and I was very pleased to do it, and I'm glad there are people still interested. I'm oh, very, very glad. God, they're, they're so interested. They're still very interested, aren't they? They love it. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much, and have a great day. You too. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.